welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, mother, and survivor. I work with competitive athletes and their families who are confronting abusive coaches. This podcast is for parents and athletes who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. While I hope you enjoy listening to this podcast, the contents are never a substitute for contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your circumstances. Past episodes of the show can be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And when you visit the website, have a look around. I've put lots of information there for you that will help answer your questions and will provide some options for you. Don't forget to subscribe to our monthly newsletter. If you're ready to speak confidentially with an attorney, please feel free to call me. You can reach me at 212-709-8141. And if anything in this show resonates with you, if you think it could be helpful to a parent, an athlete, a friend, share the episode. And don't forget to do two other things. Subscribe to the show. Also, leave a rating and a review. I read all of your reviews. All right, let's talk. I'm glad you're here and ready to listen. We're going to discuss the concepts and the differences, whether there is one between being a student athlete versus being a student laborer. If you're an NCAA student athlete, and in particular, we're not only going to be focusing on there's there's several different types of sport, but we're going to focus on some of the two most popular, that being football and Division One football and Division One basketball. And there's also other areas, but we're focusing mostly on that. But many student athletes, NCAA student athletes, they've watched while their educational institutions, their universities, this even the surrounding communities and the sports industry on whole has profited from their labor and hard work. However, many of these athletes are beginning to questionate whether, question whether they're being adequately compensated, compensated in the immediate present with their name, image, and likeness, or whether they're being compensated in the long term, whether it's for injuries that they receive, and most importantly, educational and career opportunities. Are they being compensated for that? under the current structure that's set up where others are profiting and not the athlete. The NCAA, it's reported, has earned or earns more than $1.1 billion, with a B, in average revenue. And this is just from the televising of college sports. And the NCAA has governed these programs through their colleges and universities. This system, this earning, this machine, it's been going on for more than a hundred years. And the NCAA, it's an entity, a nonprofit that is completely sovereign. It's not governed by Congress or by state law. So are student athletes getting their fair share? And that question is currently being litigated. We know about this. It's been reported for several months now. In the case of the NCAA, National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Sean Alston. That's the lead plaintiff in the, in the, or respondent. We're at the point now, and I'll give you a brief procedural history, but right now the case is being litigated in the Supreme Court. We're sitting, we're waiting for a decision to come down on recent oral arguments that took place in March of 2020, so a couple of weeks ago. And the gist or the two arguments are there's a growing number of athletes, they're questioning their compensation. They're questioning whether they're really just 
student athletes, quote unquote, or whether they're really athletic laborers. These athletes, this is their argument. They want a more equitable payment for the value they provide to these institutions and the communities where these institutions sit. So if you think about it, if you have a huge division one program, football or basketball program, and you're making hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars for this institution, the community itself is living and feeding off of your work, stores, retailers, restaurants, clothing stores, educational offshoots of the educational system, professors, even other athletes who are maybe their sport, are they don't bring in as much revenue. You're also helping to fund those scholarship athletes at one of these Big Ten universities, and you're making all of this money. So the question is, are you a laborer or are you a true student athlete, as the NCAA would argue? So that's on one side, the athletes are asking that question. And on the other side, the NCAA, their whole position is that, oh, no, you're not laborers. You're not student laborers. You're just athletes. And you're being compensated by way of you're getting a great education. You're getting opportunity. You're getting access. And that's enough. You should be satisfied with that. Historically, the NCAA is run by a board that's composed of a majority, and this is just the way it is, of white male executives. In contrast, most of the NCAA, and we're talking about, especially at the Big Ten schools, they're student athletes and they're people of color. As of 2019, over 48% of NCAA Division I football players were African-American and over 55% of NCAA Division I basketball players were African-American. For years, the athletes, they've been asking the NCAA to recognize a more equitable revenue share that better represents their contribution, their investment, the time, the work, and the commitment they put in, the daily schedule. These athletes are putting in more time than you or I as working professionals. They're having to do that while managing academic schedule. For example, working full-time, I was licensed in New York and I said, well, now I'm going to sit for and take the New Jersey bar. This was several years ago. And I remember saying to myself, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can have all of these other responsibilities and then come home, crack open a book or listen to, I, I think at that point we were still listening to stuff on CDs, but that just gives you an idea, the practices, the weight training, the lifting, then to go to class, then to do homework, study groups. That's a lot. And we have to think about, are they being equitably compensated? So now there's, after these years of dispute, these years of questioning, asking, demanding more, a civil lawsuit, and this is the procedural history, a civil lawsuit was filed and it's now snaking and it's made its way up to the Supreme Court. And I talked about just a moment ago, the two opposing arguments where the college athletes The NCAA is saying that the college athletes are saying that they're really amateurs. They're not professionals. They're not, or my term or term that I see as being used more, student laborers. That's not true. The NCAA is in their position. They're saying that they're just amateurs and that payment is given to them in the form of the scholarships versus professional players. And just to crystallize this, in contrast, the student athletes, they're asserting that No, the NCAA and others, the sporting industry is improperly benefiting off of their labor and violating federal statutes. So that brings me to now procedurally what I was saying 
right now, the case was argued before the Supreme Court. Let me see the date here. The case was argued on March, I think I said 31, 2021. And it had started in the Ninth Circuit Federal Court. And during over the course of this, so the writ of certiorari was filed in October. So this goes back even to October of 15, 2020, after it was in the circuit and the trial courts. It's made its way up over a couple of months. And part of that coming before the Supreme Court, being granted the ability to come before the Supreme Court parties when they do that, is that you may have outside individuals who are not named, they're not necessarily a party to the suit, they may seek to interject themselves and to file written papers or written briefs known as front of the court briefs. And one of those briefs that I found very interesting when I read, and that's what I want to focus on, it was written by the African-American antitrust lawyers in support of the respondents. And respondents in this case are the student athletes. And it was a brief where several points were brought up to help and assist the court in evaluating what the issues were. And that's why you file these briefs as a friend of the court, because you're attempting to assist the court. You're attempting to take a side with either one, either party, and help the court decide that. And this brief that was written by these groups of lawyers, here are some of the things that it it brings out and helps the court, I hope, persuade the court to see these young men and young women as true, what they really have been being used as for decades as laborers and not just amateur, you know, get up and play when you want, oh, go out there and have fun. They are working. And the brief says that it's overlooked what the NCAA is doing is that they're overlooking people affected. And here are the people that are affected. Thousands of African-American student athletes who do not make it to the professional league, do not graduate from college, and whose labor is taken without market rate compensation. I found that to be a very poignant point because the hope and individuals are being are playing, these individuals are student athletes. You don't Think about the athletes that are not making it to the next level, making it on a professional team who are signing the multi-million dollar contracts. But the true, and I believe this, and I agree with this brief written by the African-American antitrust lawyers, is that there's that large segment of athletes, thousands of African-American students who don't graduate, who don't make it to the professional league, and they were never compensated for their labor. These individuals, many of them from neighborhoods and communities that haven't had access to capital, that for generations, because of different systemic, intentional systemic issues such as redlining, the inability to get financing for housing. Their parents weren't able to give to them generational wealth. And now they themselves are being sent off with the hope, with their talent and the skill that they will receive some type of far off compensation when they sign on with the professional league, which thousands of students don't ever get that. And here's the rub. Because they're working so hard as laborers, they also don't have the opportunity to get a really good education. And that's the damage that's being done by the system that's been set up by the NCAA and by their executive board. Unchecked and unmanaged 
for decades. The It goes on to say in the brief that not only are the students impacted because they don't have an opportunity over the course to really dig in and take advantage of the educational opportunities, but also their families. Their families are directly impacted by this. And as a result, the student athletes are used, these student athletes who don't make it to the professional level, they're used and discarded without any compensation because they've been working full-time jobs and haven't had a chance to get the career preparation that college is for. It goes on to say some other points in the brief is that the NCAA should not be permitted to use in their argument that these athletes, they're just amateurs. And because they're amateurs, the college scholarship is compensation enough. What they're really saying, and by way of this brief that I'm quoting from, is that the NCAA, they want the court, they want the Supreme Court to carve out an exception to the laws that they're violating. And the laws that the NCAA is violating are antitrust laws in the labor market. And they're trying to get an exception so that they can continue to treat these laborers in this manner. Division one football and basketball, it generates, as I said early on, billions, well, billions of dollars in TV and other revenue for college members and universities. And that there's a real harm to that. The money that the school makes, so for the different, like I was saying, the community, for the administrators, it's being made, that money is being made over and it's not being prioritized so that these athletes are getting the right education. And many times, sometimes their scholarships are not renewed. So they're being given these dreams they're signing on different scholarships if there's an injury or if there's some type of, you know, disagreement with the coaching staff. And I talked about this in a prior episode. You should go back and listen to that. What to do when a coaching abuses forces you to transfer. Many times students are stuck in that limbo where they're having to transfer because of abuse. And that is also to their detriment. So they've been putting all of this time, all of this energy into working on the field, working on the court, never getting the proper education, running now headlong into abuse and being forced to transfer. The NCAA and its member schools are engaged, the brief says, in blatant horizontal price fixing that violates, and this is the law that uh, the NCAA, it's alleged they're violating section one of the Sherman Act. And that's an act that was put in place by Congress, by lawmakers to try to protect violations of antitrust laws in business and in in other areas. So the concept of, and just to really touch very briefly on the NCAA's argument there, the buzzword that the NCAA uses is amateurism, that these division one basketball and football players, they're amateurs. And the brief argues, and I would sign on to that argument, that it's really a myth. It's a total and absolute myth The records show that there's massive amounts of money that changes hands for entertainment that these athletes provide, and that's taken the priority over their education. It also goes on to say, and there's a quote, and I want to say that quote for you just really very briefly, on page eight of this quote, there was um, one individual, one student athlete, who upon returning home 
and after leaving a program without a college degree, was speaking to his grandfather, the brief says, and noting that his scholarship was worth $200,000, he says to his grandfather, it really wasn't free though. You're like a slave under the quote. So that's very much how some athletes are feeling that they're not amateurs, that this is not playtime, that this is real and actual work that they're not being compensated for. And that's what the arguments are here. And that's what we have to look and we have to think about when you're going out to your to a live game or when you're putting it on television. You're not just watching for entertainment. You're watching individuals, student laborers who are putting in real time, real time that you and I as fully grown, developed adults are putting into our professions and they should be compensated for that. The brief says that the myth caused by the NCAA's market manipulation, it's exacerbated, especially for black athletes, as I was saying before, who comprise a great majority of the players in basketball and in football. They are huge. They have increased. So over the years, the NCAA has been around for decades. And with the introduction of African-American players, as you started to move out of strict segregation and African-Americans were allowed to attend universities and colleges, you saw that their dominance in the sports area increased TV revenues to the levels that it's right now. But yet the NCAA is not compensating. It reminds me of another area where we're never, we were never compensated for. And that's, you know, the area of unpaid labor slavery. You weren't compensated in that area. And again, we see another system where you have a majority of talented, skilled, hardworking athletic laborers who again aren't being compensated. To me, it's a pattern. It looks like a way that a business model was scaled and replicated and is being abused. The brief says in this, in short, for the past 20 years, the promise of a college education in exchange for athletic labor, it's been a total ruse. It's been smoke and mirrors for Black athletes. Let's talk about this point of education. The University of North Carolina found that between 2004 and 2008, 60% of football and basketball players were reading between the fourth and eighth grade level. That deserves a moment of silence. Athletes that are not making it to the professional league, that are being forced to work inordinate hours, they're risking their health, long-term injuries. I've had clients who've had more surgeries, have more doctors, more practitioners than I can... <laughs> that I can even imagine. Hit replacements, tears, avulsions, concussions. These are an impact on their bodies that they're going to carry into adulthood, to their 60s, their 70s. They're going to be limping. They're going to need medical care. And they were never compensated for this. So when you're looking at that game, when you're turning it on, when you're placing your bets in some states on these children that are playing, you have to think that it's just not as innocent as it appears. And that's why, that's one of the arguments as to why they should be compensated. If they're not going to be given 
the education they were promised because they're working too hard. They should not leave these institutions like the University of North Carolina and others not being able to read or write. It's a practice. It's a practice that I've written about where if you are a professor or if you're someone at the school, you're a staff member, and you notice you many times are being forced, it's a division one, or if it's any type of athlete, you're being forced to to help them get into, you know, less challenging courses or to give them passing grades. And it's a type of collusion that some coaches have with the schools so that these athletes can continue to work on the field and on the court and just be pushed through the academic portion of the process. So they're not getting the education. They're not ending up. They're not being able to leave with a degree, with a degree that's valuable so that once their athletic careers is over, they can go into the job market. It's a double impact. Their bodies are being used. Many times they have long lasting injuries and they're leaving and they're not able to find a meaningful job. They're not able, they have no skills. Placing athletes, when these athletes go into majors and they take classes that are not time consuming because they have to work, then that waters down their degree and makes them less marketable. They're being stared into courses where they know, these coaches know they're not going to be able to ever become employable. And that's not right. It's criminal, in my opinion. So one of the last things that I'll touch on in just this idea and the arguments that are being placed before the Supreme Court, and we should carry in our own minds when we're looking at where we fall along these lines of student athlete and amateur athlete versus student labor, is to also ask the question, what are these student athletes, student laborers in these high profile programs, and even some of the one, you know, the division two, II, division three programs, what are some of the other battles and challenges they're up against as they're making this argument? I said before that student laborers, they're not only just funding other athletic programs, funding the staff, funding different areas of the university. They're also funding the community and the collateral businesses that live off of college towns. Go to any college town and you'll see a thriving communities. But they're also many times funding the salary of the state's highest paid employee. In Rutgers at the universe here in New Jersey, where I'm licensed to practice, it was reported in 2019 that the Pat Hobbs, who is the Rutgers athletic director, was financially rewarded for his work for on the athletic department. His contract was renewed to from 2021 to 22, and then may could be extended to 2024 and beyond. The contract extension increased the base salary, and it could even soar past the university president. And this is being reported by the New Jersey Advanced Media, NJ.com, is where I'm getting some of this information from. His original contract, his base salary was at 560000 Maximum bonuses could take it to 670000 So he's getting this increase with bonuses. 
a look at some of the salaries of the athletic directors from some of the Big Ten schools. And I'll just go through a few so you get a flavor of what these student athletes, what their labor is funding. In Wisconsin, Big Ten Conference, the athletic director, total compensation package, $1.2 million. In Penn State, total compensation at or around, and these numbers may have changed, they're old. This report I'm reading from is about three years old, over 800000 In Iowa, total compensation for the athletic director, 800000 Mississippi, so I spent some time in the South, quite amount, a good amount of time in the South, and I know about the cost of living in the South. Mississippi, the athletic director, undoubtedly these sports are helping pay for $700,000. Purdue, compensation over a million dollars for the athletic director. Alabama, the state where I went to college, the athletic director, over $1.1 million with a bonus. So the bonus is possible. I'll read a couple more. Let's go back down south where we know the cost of living is remarkably different. Mississippi State, compensation package, almost 800000 In Oklahoma, compensation for the athletic director, over a million dollars with a maximum bonus of over 750000 Two more to give you a flavor of what some of these student athletes are up against when they're trying to go against the status quo and demand for your compensation. Michigan State, compensation for the athletic director, over a million dollars. And the last one, why, just two more, two more, also in the lower portion of, of the United States, Louisville, which is in the Atlantic coast, over $2.7 million compensation. Arkansas, over $1.2 million with a maximum bonus of over $1 million. That's what we mean by student laborers. That's why this system that the NCAA is clawing so hard to hold on to. That's why they need it. These athletic directors, many times paid more than the governor, the legislatures in these states. They're the highest paid state employee. And who is helping to fund that? Student laborers. So we have to think about that when they're pushing back against the status quo, when we're asking, why is the NCAA asking for an exception to well-established antitrust rules? Why are they making this position? Now, as of the time of this recording, we know that while we're waiting for the Supreme Court to hand down their decision, there has been discussions and negotiations with the NCAA that they will recognize different concessions to student athletes, that they will allow for some compensation for their name, image, and likeness. And preemptively, several states, Georgia, Alabama, I think it's Oklahoma, California, different states, they have taken upon themselves, and I put a big footnote and asterisk next to that, to allow for their athletes to benefit from some of the labor that they put forward. But when you dig down into some of these concessions that the states and universities are allowing, you'll see that it's, to me, blatant double talking, or it's they're not genuine in the concessions. So for example, you'll see things such as if the student athlete wants to enter into a contractor or some type of sponsorship, the schools have the right to, you know, define how that's set up and to 
really take the lead on contract negotiations and provisions. So there's two, there's two goals that these schools, these independent schools are doing and the state legislatures. They want to make their state more attractive to student athletes and beat out competitive schools. So for example, come to my state, come to our school, we'll allow you to be compensated for some of this athletic work. And also they're doing this because they know they want to show ahead of time that they're making concessions. But when you really read the fine print of these contracts and these provisions and these laws, I should say, the laws that are being established, are they really allowing for true full compensation? Athletes, parents, you have to be aware of what's going on. You have to think strategically and you have to understand when you have a skilled athlete who wants to go to one of these schools, you have to be able to understand and think about all of the different obstacles, challenges, and landmines that might be along the way. Think about the goals. This A lot of these things go without saying as parents. I know you have this on your mind, but we're here in my firm. We're here to help you think about that strategically. Think about these contracts. Think about what it really means to be a student athlete, an amateur versus a student laborer, how to be covered for that, how to be compensated for that. I enjoyed this discussion. As you can tell, it's an issue that I am passionate about. Systems and process that have been set up that have breaks, that have inherent disadvantages to one party. That's really the purpose and the mission of my entire practice and the work that I do in my office, you know, be it for competitive youth athletes, be it if I'm talking to a client during the course of when they're looking at their marriage contract and dissolving that and thinking about that. I'm thinking through the lens of how can we provide equity and fairness? That's the whole point of the law. And I try to make it easy for you to understand the law and to move forward with next steps. I look forward to our next conversation. As always, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Take care. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.